<laughs> I didn't realize how like dramatically comical that was gonna be. What a wonderful call! It's <laughs> <laughs> a shriek. That is a frog that means business. So yeah, it's your turn to guess, Ben. Here. Oh, who's the little shrieker? I reckon big shrieker? we have a frog from Central America. Uh, I reckon it's the mountain chicken. The mountain chicken. That's always your guess, isn't it? You love a mountain chicken. <laughs> One day it'll be a mountain <laughs> Have I chicken. guessed the mountain chicken Have before? Not? Maybe I guessed it. No, maybe I guessed it before. Maybe that's unfair. Yeah, yeah. Um, this feels like you could misconstrue this as a, a chicken calling in the forest. Is that why they got the name? I thought it was because they were delicious and tasted like chicken. I choose to believe my version of stories and events. That's fair enough. That's valid. I have a horrible feeling it is. Yeah, your, yours is a real one, though. Okay, well, that cool. That rather unsettling sort of shriek sound that we had. Pac-Man frog. Pac-Man frog, no, but a good guess. God damn it. They'd be more of a grunter, I reckon. I think they scream. Oh, they scream. <laughs> mm. I think so. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, no, it was in fact the sound of the Sonoran Desert Toad, Incilius alvarius, and that was the call of a male toad. Their mating call, their advertisement call. So the female toads would have been loving that. I'm imagining a scenario of a very hot, harsh desert for toad life, some rainfall, and then just a cacophony of toad screeches in the night. That's exactly what happens. That's exactly what happens. They are explosive breeders. So as soon as it rains... And um, obviously the Sonoran Desert Toad, we're in the desert, which is the Sonoran Desert in sort of west, southern, southwestern America, USA. And uh, yeah, the reason for that is because we are doing a paper about that area as well. But before we get onto that, we're talking about this toad. And this is a big old toad, gets up to 18 centimetres from the tip of its nose to its vent, where it excretes. And that is a... Proper toad. Proper chonker. Yeah, big toad. Yeah. And there is something quite cool about this toad. So this toad, it's been known for a long time that glands of this toad produce a toxin, which Mm -hmm. is 5-MeO-DMT. I'm not going to try and pronounce that word, but this is actually a very strong hallucinogen in humans. And it's a controlled substance in most countries because it's used recreationally. But as it turns out, there's been some new science Coming out recently, there's been a very nice study which suggests that this powerful hallucinogen can also be used to treat depression, anxiety and PTSD pharmaceutically. So they did a little trial on it and four weeks after people were administered one one dose of this 5-MeO-DMT, they had reduced symptoms of those conditions and were generally more satisfied with their lives. So historically, these toads have been collected by sort of psychonauts in order to sort of squeeze them for their juices and use it as a hallucinogenic drug but now you know they are actually in some areas they've been over collected for that purpose i think it was a bit unclear on the on the website i was reading but it seemed as though that's it's probably one of those things that it's hard to actually work out what the population is anyway so it's just like oh there seems to be a lot of people taking a lot out yeah i would imagine if Chances it was like that's not good if it was right next to a big city or something you might see that if the word got out right but yeah the um for, yeah fascinating little bit of history about this toad though and um yeah you know just another Toads example must be loving life yeah, I mean, they're getting some good press. Yeah, always interesting to see how these sort of compounds that 
reptiles and amphibians produce can have medicinal uses as well as, you know, these ones have had a recreational use for humans for a long time. But yeah, really interesting, lovely toad. And like I say, we're in the area, we're in the area that this toad is in for our paper this week. So we'll get onto that. And this is a paper, another patron episode. So shouts to Haley for choosing this patron episode. And Haley is actually from Arizona and wanted an episode about a little lizard from Arizona called the Western. Oh, she be teaching us then. Yeah, literally. Yeah, I mean, imagine being <laughs> from Arizona. You just go around outside. There might be a rattlesnake out there. Pretty cool. But yes, Haley was very interested in a particular species of gecko called the Western banded gecko, and so. We found a little paper about this species, and the paper is by Hammond, Witkowski, Wilson, Zuvi, Getz, Eck, and Clark, published in 2020. Know thine enemy. Predator identity influences the response of western banded geckos, which are Celionyx variegatus or Coleonyx variegatus, to chemosensory cues. They got a classic gecko look to them. They have. This is published in Journal of Herpetology, and yes, mate, they are so much like a leopard gecko, it's a little bit insane do you not think yes they have those same hilarious sort of grumpy looking eyes yeah and almost like the blushing around mm. the eyes yep. the banded pattern down the back is very reminiscent of a juvenile leopard gecko yep. and these things basically are a juvenile leopard gecko in size they get to sort of 15 centimeters total length but yeah extremely yeah, beautiful lovely. extremely beautiful creatures yeah eye blush the sort of pink and yellow stripes down the back the sort of chubby gecko look I mean, they're just cool little lizards. I can see why Haley likes them. I like them too. And um, yeah, I was thinking like the similarity between those two species, the leopard gecko and this Western banded gecko, I would say it's convergent evolution. What would you say? Do you think it's justified of that descriptor? Depending on how closely related they actually are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, you <laughs> if know, they're not closely related, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I mean, just by virtue of the fact that leopard geckos are in like Pakistan and this is a study from Western United States. I mean... Those two places are pretty disparate. I mean, I know there was yeah. one continent. I think there's a lot because when I look at these banded geckos, I also see patterns from like Paradura species or even some of the like some Asian ground gecko species. Mm. So there's something about that patterning. The Cyrtodactylus have a bandiness sometimes. Yeah, Cyrtodactylus, exactly. Have this sort of almost saddles, but kind of more like stripes thing going on. Mm. So, bands. Yeah. bands. But in terms of face, Absolutely, 100%. If they're not super close to leopard geckos, then there's some sort of advantage to having a gecko face that looks like that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, this is a species, Western banded gecko, found in American deserts. So it's found in two of them, the Mojave and the Sonoran deserts in western, southwestern USA. And we've got a potentially Saxicola species here, Ben. Apparently they like rock outcroppings in the desert. Who doesn't, though? You like them even more now. And... This species has got some interesting etymology. The name's quite fun. So the name Coleonyx is derived from the Greek word coleos, which means a sheath, and onyx, which means nail, talon, or claw, which I don't think I knew. Onyx means nail, talon, or claw in ancient Greek. They also named a Pokemon that. Interesting little bit of Pokemon trivia. And, um, it felt different though, right? It felt different though, yeah. Yeah, it's rockier. <laughs> but yeah, so coleos, a sheath, and onyx nail talon or claw and that is in reference to the sheath claws like a cat they can sort of sheath them in their little toes when they don't need them which is quite nice keep them sharp then presumably if they're running around on sand yeah yeah 
yeah, you don't want them getting blunted. And the uh, scientific, the second part of the scientific name, the species epithet variegatus is Latin. It means of different sorts, which refers to the contrasting elements of their color pattern, which we've just been talking about. Their bandy, bandy colors and their spots. Excellent. Excellent. So in the last episode, we were talking about predators sound we were talking about sound in relation to predators weren't we because it was a lizard making a a little noise telling its predators whether it was big or small well this time we're kind of flipping the tables in both in terms of the sense and the direction of the sort of communication so (laughs) it's getting pretty confusing but what i mean is we're talking about lizards and snakes and smells so this is a paper all about smell and many animals, lizards and snakes included, rely on smell to identify their predators. So if they get a whiff of a particular predator, that might change how they behave and they can then react accordingly. So there's some evidence of this in this actual this species. So back in 96, Dial and Schwenk presented geckos with cotton swabs, which had smells from both harmless and predatory snakes and found that these geckos only exhibited tail displays towards predatory snakes. So that's where they raise their tail and wave it about in the air. And they do that because if you're being attacked, accosted by a predator or you expect to be, these geckos will offer their tail instead of their body as a sort of distraction technique. And it means the tail gets attacked. So if they're going to get, you know, say it was a bird, they could get pecked on the tail. It's not such a big deal protect the organs or if the snake's going to bite something it could bite the tail the tail can then break off and the gecko can scuttle away it will regrow a disgusting smaller tail but at least it will have a tail and it won't be dead so it's quite good well the other critical aspect of it too is you don't waste energy flapping your tail around when the thing that you've come across and you smell so you know it's in close proximity to you isn't actually a threat isn't a predator yeah because what a waste of time Yeah, some snakes are small. They don't eat geckos. They're a joke to these geckos. They're not scared of them. So they don't need to wave their tail when they smell them. That's the key thing, Mm -hmm. like you say, which is really cool. You know, it's not just like, bleep, bleep, bloop, bloop. I smell a snake. Time to wave my tail. It's like, I smell a specific type of snake that could actually eat me. I'm going to wave my tail. Exactly. Yeah. And the authors were kind of building on that research and these Western banded geckos. And they wanted to see whether or not they would react differently to two different species of predatory snakes. So they were kind of honing it down even more. Right. We know they react to predatory snakes, but do they actually differentiate between different kinds of predatory snakes? And so banded geckos... They co-occur over much of their range with both glossy snakes, which are Arizona elegans, and sidewinder rattlesnakes, which are Cratalus cerastes. And both of these snakes are nocturnal predators of geckos. They like eating geckos. And they're also quite common in the habitat. So it's likely that the geckos would come across them quite a lot. And the crucial thing here is that the glossy snake is an active forager. It's like looking around they say that they sort of slither around the desert at night going in all the crevices they look like an active forager they do this is a slim line hunting snake this is yeah like an arrow pointy little face yes mm-hmm. they do that's a looker and a finder that is it's got big eyes yes they do they look like they hunt around and they do and the opposing sort of style of predation is the sidewinder well, I should mention the glossy snake, what they like to do, they slither about in the night in the desert when the geckos are sleeping <laughs> and they try and find them when they're asleep and then they eat them when they're tired. Oh, Brutal. 
The Sidewinder has a slightly different strategy. It's also a nocturnal predator, but what it does, it sits and it waits in ambush for things to pass by. Of course, it's got the heat-sensitive pit, so it can detect very slight changes in temperature, strong sense of smell. If you walk past it, you're going to get slammed. And um, yeah, uh, well, these are the threats to the geckos. 10 to 15 centimetres is what they say in the paper. That's its range. So as long as you don't come within that range, you'll be all right. Don't come within 10 to 15 centimetres of a Sidewinder. You'll be in trouble. Yeah. Maybe just stay 15 plus. <laughs> Maybe just go 30 just to be on the safe side. Just be safe. Yeah, why not? Yeah, <laughs> so why not? They wanted to see if geckos are smelling snakes and using their wits to employ different strategies depending on the predators. So the authors needed some smells and they needed some geckos. So they packed up their gear and they went to Arizona and they caught up a bunch of geckos and they caught up some snakes, I assume, to get some snake smells. They needed a smell from each of these snakes, the glossy snake and the sidewinder. And then they also had a no smell group, which is like the sort of control to just control how geckos respond anyway. And then they tested each. Yes, because they are being placed into an unfamiliar, very un-gecko-like environment. Yeah, they're basically just being plonked in a box uh, with a hiding place. Yeah. And what they're doing is they're looking to see if the gecko reacts differently based on what was in the box before them. If it was a rattlesnake, if it was a glossy snake, or if it was just no snake. And they were sort of recording how they respond in terms of how long they spent still, how long they spent, how much time they spent exploring and how much time they spent sheltering. And it was pretty informative, really, wasn't it? It turns out they are reacting differently to different snake smells. Well, first of all, if they smell nothing, they kind of just bowl around quite a lot they're not that afraid they're yeah, just, they're sort, just of sort of wandering about go about their gecko lives they're, they're most likely to move hmm. also most likely to like go into shelter sites as well yeah just to go chill and don't bother doing tail displays no. which also makes sense because why would you bother <laughs> not going to tail display for no reason they're not idiots and then what about the rattlesnake so when they smelt the rattlesnake or the sidewinder they spent a lot more time still they didn't want to walk around and the authors suggest that that is because if they smell that there's an ambush predator in the vicinity so you know there's a rattlesnake somewhere around looking potentially to ambush you the worst thing you can do is walk around because if you walk around you could come into that crucial 15 centimeter strike range by accident that kill zone yeah and then you're dead. So the best thing to do is probably try and say still. Try and ascertain where that smell's coming from. And if you can detect the uh, rattlesnake, then you're laughing. And they behave differently for the glossy snake, which is the sort of cruise foraging active predator, which is to be avoided at all costs. And when they smelt that one, they moved around a bit, but they seemed a little bit more cautious than if there was no smell. So they were moving around more than the rattlesnake, but not as much as if there was no smell. And they think yep. that it's because glossy snakes are active search predators. And they locate their prey by kind of hunting them down, sometimes by following smells or sometimes by looking. And if you just freeze in place, they can smell you. So they're going to come and find you. You're better off to sort of like move around a little bit, stay active than just sort of stay in one place. Right. And not enter shelter sites either. Both the route snake and the glossy snake, you're not going into these shelter sites, which I found interesting. I'm wondering whether that's sort of a, this is maybe the sort of areas these snakes are hanging out in as well so you don't want to go into these shelter sites if you can smell a snake because it's probably going to be that shelter site that's occupied if you're close enough to smell it maybe yeah maybe? well yeah yeah <laughs> you want to get out of the area really don't you rather than hiding somewhere there might be a snake but yeah, yeah what's really cool is that they're using these chemical cues they're smelling the different snakes they're discriminating which snake it is and then they're behaving accordingly and there is some evidence actually 
really cool point they made in the discussion of this where they were talking about another species from the USA, uh, horned lizards, Phrynosoma. Oh, good. I'm glad you were going to bring this up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so what they did was um, they did a similar sort of study, but they did it where they could see the predator. And what they found is that when they saw the ambush predator, which in that experiment was also a rattlesnake, they, instead of freezing like they did in this one, they actually ran away. And what they think is that if they can see the predator rather than smelling it, they know where the rattlesnake is and then they can make adjustments they can basically just leave because rattlesnakes are fat, yeah. fat and slow they can't really chase you down so if you can see exactly. it you can run away from it it's only when you can't see it you can only smell it you have to freeze because it could be close well and it, and it does give you this idea of the sort of okay i can smell it but i haven't seen it yet stop because you know that you're safe where you are because you're not dead <laughs> and you can spend that time trying to observe to see the rattlesnake once you've seen it, then you can make that informed choice like the Texan horned lizard to get out of there. Yeah. But crucially, you're not sort of panicking and then just immediately running into whatever set up Sidewinder kill zone is out there. Yeah. And then on the other side of that, they also had an active foraging snake in that horned lizard paper, uh, which was a whip snake. And what they found was that if they thought they could be seen by that, they would actually generally not run because if it can see you and you run, it's going to chase you. So they were it like... It will catch you. <laughs> yeah, it will catch you, it will eat you. So they were yeah. like, oh God, there it is. I better stay still and hope it hasn't spotted me, which is also really cool. So if they smell a predator... No, it was, it was defensive postures as well. So oh. it was, I'm going to play the bluff game as well. You know, this isn't worth your time. <laughs> I'm going to make it a struggle. So they puffed up. <laughs> yeah. And they are very spiky, those particular little lizards. Exactly, they are. They do. I think these are the guys that do the sort of sideways flattening a body stuff right oh nice nice <laughs> i'm gonna check while you're moving on but yeah the you know the main point is that these lizards are clever enough to distinguish what their predators are and react accordingly there's no one size fits all for all predators be it whether they've sensed them by seeing them whether they sense oh they're them the by blood squirt eye boys oh they shoot the blood out of the eye oh god it doesn't taste good it tastes bad they can do the flattened body stuff too but um and the sort of puffiness they're yeah <laughs> <laughs> they they have a wonderful suite of defensive mechanisms, including squirting blood out of their eyes like <laughs> maniacs. I love it. I love it. But yeah, I really like um, Coleonyx variegatus, these western banded, western banded geckos. I'm impressed by their ability to differentiate between predators. So yeah, really cool suggestion. Thank you very much to Haley for suggesting a paper about western banded geckos. Have you got anything else on the western banded geckos before we move on? No, not really. I, I just sort of love this paper and love the idea that they've managed to get inside potentially inside the minds of these lizards and it gives you a little insight of how they're sort of perceiving things via scent which is fascinating yeah they're and, thinking about it yeah a much richer lizard experience than potentially you you would think love cool it. all right so um have you got any other business this week i don't i have nothing for this week i've got a little bit of business first of all a uh, really cool paper came out by mcknight et al nocturnal basking in freshwater turtles a global assessment so turns out there's this behavior in turtles essentially if the water's too hot what are you gonna say no it's fine just carry no sorry i've I was, it, it's it's 
my brain short circuiting and <laughs> no it's not this was this <laughs> this was another one that i thought we could cover in a future episode oh really <laughs> we're using the map in every, any other business <laughs> oh dear what do you want to do do you want to do it as this episode i'll just shut up or do you want to just basically i'll just make my point is there's a pair of papers that i had one is nocturnal basking in freshwater turtles, and yeah. the others is leech removal is not the primary driver of basking in freshwater turtles. And I thought somewhere in there, there's some sort of coolness about talking about basking in freshwater turtles. Hmm. Yeah. But if you've read this paper and can make that decision, then that's brilliant. I mean, I don't want to be in the most kindest way possible. I think it's more of like a sentence at the end type of thing. Okay. That's like absolute going in two footed on the paper, which I do not mean to do because I think it's super cool. But I think the headline is pretty short and it is that when it's hot, the turtles get out of the water. When it's hot, they get out of the water. Yeah, when it's too hot. As in with the, oh, when it's, when the water's too hot. This is why I wanted to bring it up because they called it nocturnal basking, right? But the turtles are doing it only when they're too hot. So in the, to me, that's the opposite of basking. They're coming out of the water to cool down. I think they should have called it chilling. I agree. Because when you said basking, my mind went, ah, thermoregulation, no. gaining energy from sun to maintain a body temperature. Opposite of that. They're trying to come out because the, they only do it when the water is warmer than the air and when the water is warmer than their preferred temperature. Interesting. So they're coming out at night to cool Interesting. down. Interesting. So yeah. it's the, the air is sort of punchier in terms of its response to temperature. The, body, the water tends to hold its temperature more stably. So it's too warm at night. Yeah, so maybe after a really hot day, they come out. Yeah, and get some relief. And some article called it moon basking, which I kind of liked, but also still gives connotations of being warmer. I think they should have called it chilling. I'm just saying. I love it, but they should have called it chilling. Moon basking is a wonderfully poetic term. However, it implies that they're gaining something from the moon. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe they just like the moon. Sucking up that moon energy. Once they come out once to see the moon, they do it every night. Well, not every night has a moon either, so that's also not brilliant. No, it's a bit misleading. So there was that really cool paper by McKnight. Night chilling. I think you were right. Night nocturnal chilling. Nocturnal chilling. Yeah. So yeah, I'll put the link in the show notes if you want to read that. Very cool. And then I had another piece of other business. This actually came in from two different people. So uh, Huenen sent this in and so did Anil. So thank you very much both. And do you remember we were talking about the cartwheeling snakes? There was that snake in Malaysia that <laughs> did the yeah. crazy cartwheel. Yeah, yeah well, mate. the sort of flip. Yeah, there's a video. I'm sending it to you. You can watch it. Because, you know, we were skeptical about how good it was actually going to be and how much of a cartwheel it was actually going to be turns out it's really awesome it turns out i mean i'll let you decide for yourself mate okay i've got this lovely little snake going (laughs) it just rolls the hell out of there (laughs) wow the speed of it i know yeah it's pretty awesome isn't it oh my god it reminds me of how a leech moves underwater when it's been sort of perturbed it's got this sort of it's going so fast you can barely tell that it's a cartwheel it looks like a um it looks like an octopus moving or something. Yeah, something aquatic with yeah. its sort of flail and speed. Unbelievable. Yeah, pretty awesome. Wow. So yeah, it turns out it is pretty dramatic. It is pretty well worth a watch. So yeah, thanks for sending that in, both of you two. Well, that's going in the show notes. People so yeah, to see this remarkable snake. It's a dwarf reed snake. Your audio from the video <laughs> coming through the... 
<laughs> I couldn't hear what the hell you were saying. <laughs> it's so dramatic, that noise. Yeah, it's called the dwarf reed snake, which is Pseudorabdion longiceps. Very cool. Well worth a watch. And then that was all the other business I had, I think. Awesome. Yeah, so I think really all remains to be said is we're on social media, so you can find us on there. If you want to get in touch, if we got anything wrong, or if you want to ask us a question, or if you want to suggest the papers, we might not take your suggestion unless you're a Patreon, patreon.com slash highlights. but it's always good to see stuff. If you've written something, please get in touch with us, highlights at gmail.com. Yeah, thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. 